The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Clean Coders and its employees. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Clean Coders podcast. I'm your host, Charles Max Wood, and this week we're talking to Mr. Robert C. Martin, Uncle Bob. How's it going, Bob? How are things over in Illinois, Chicagoland? Well, things are just fine. The weather has warmed up substantially. Most of the snow has melted, so things here are pretty good. Oh, good deal. Good to hear. Did you work your tail off to get that senior developer gig just to realize that senior dev doesn't actually mean dream job? I've been there too. My first senior developer job was at a place where all of our triumphs were the bosses and all the failures were ours. The second one was a great place to continue to learn and grow, only for it to go under due to poor management. And now I get job offers from great places to work all the time. Not only that, but the last job interview I actually sat in was a discussion about how much my podcast had helped the people interviewing me. If you're looking for a way to get into your dream job, then join our Dev Heroes Accelerator. Not only will we help you get the kind of exposure that makes you attractive to your dream employer, but you'll be able to ask them for top dollar as well. Check it out at devheroesaccelerator.com. And yeah, I got some exciting news from you where you're writing a new book. This is and, true. <laughs> uh, yeah, I always love to hear that. It's like, oh, I'm going to have to go pick that one up. Clean craftsmanship, which is exciting. And when we were talking before we started recording this episode, and I was sitting here thinking, man, I remember the clean or the software craftsmanship movement. And you were pretty involved in that. A lot of other people that I know were pretty involved in that. They were having conferences about it. And, you know, I, I'd get invites out to that. And yeah, so I'm, I'm wondering, does this come out of that some? Or have you been having conversations with people? I mean, what, what brought this about? So this is the... Um kind of the logical conclusion of the of the clean series of books. Uh, it's, nice. it's related, of course, to the craftsmanship movement because the craftsmanship movement was all about doing software well and behaving in a professional and, and uh, ethical manner. The book that I'm writing is kind of the culmination of those ideas. So, you know, I've written clean code and the clean coder and clean architecture and clean agile. And I was puzzling to myself, you know, what 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 would be the next thing for me to write? And and for a while, I thought I would do two separate books. One of them would be clean clean disciplines, and the other one would be clean uh, professionalism or something like that. I I, did, mm -hmm. I only had these working titles. And then as I was writing, I thought, why don't I just put these two in the same these two ideas, combine them into a single idea, and call it clean craftsmanship. So the book is kind of an interesting one because it begins it, very technical. I dive deep into uh, what can only be called advanced test-driven development and advanced programming disciplines. And I call that the disciplines uh, section of the book. So the book mm -hmm. is, is separated into three sections, disciplines, standards, and ethics, which are the kind of um, definition of craftsmanship, if you will, a craftsperson is a person who has certain disciplines they follow, they, they meet certain standards and they're driven by a code of ethics. And that's how the book moves. That's the progression of the book. So the, the discipline section is deeply technical. There's a lot of code. I've got some videos that go along with it. It's, you know, it tries to show 
how a programmer would behave in a test-driven world uh, following the discipline of test-driven development. And then the, the second part of the book is the book about standards. And this one is really written for people who are leading managers, technical leads, folks who just have, you know, a few other guys that they are leading. They're the architects or they're somehow the, you know, the de facto leader of a team. And the the notion here is what should you expect? What are the standards that you expect from programmers? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I lay all those out. And there's a set of them that I lay out. You know, you should expect you know, that they they don't deliver terrible code, you know, things like that. And then the final section of the book is a book on ethics. And the the ethics are the the projection of those standards. You know, where do those standards take us? And they take right. us these ethical statements of, of what are the ethical rules of being a programmer in in the world today. Sorry, I couldn't hear what you said. Oh, Siri couldn't hear what I said. <laughs> We have all these all these things nowadays that chatter at us. So yeah, oh, that's yeah. The, that's the the culmination, right? It 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 starts with the disciplines, it moves towards the standards, and it ends up at the ethics. Right. So so yeah, so it's it's kind of this interesting progression. And let's just start at the beginning. And and I I'm sorry, I just I can't even remember <laughs> the three things you just listed because I'm just yep. I'm, I'm I'm soaking it in, but. You know, I have to hear it repeated about eight more times before it really hits my consciousness. So that starts with disciplines. Disciplines. Right. So and, you know, when you talk about disciplines, I mean, we've talked about TDD on here. We've talked about Agile on here. Is that the direction you're heading? And and if so, what are kind of the core things here? Yeah. So the, the discipline section focuses on the. The four disciplines within extreme programming, test-driven development, okay. refactoring, pair programming, simple design. Gotcha. Okay. Those, those are the disciplines. There, there are other disciplines I could have mentioned, but I've covered them in other books. And I really wanted mm-hmm. to drive these four home. Really, really right. strong. Gotcha. So I think I think TDD is kind of the most talked about, I guess, of all of these. And, and pair programming seems at least on its face to be the most understandable. So, so let's let's talk about the others. You've got uh, simple design and what was the fourth one? Simple design and refactoring. Refactoring. Mm-hmm. Right. So let's talk about refactoring here for a minute. Is in just in, I don't know that we necessarily want to go down the rabbit hole of you know what good refactoring is, but. Uh, maybe give us a broad overview of it and and how it fits into the discipline of craftsmanship. Like, how does this fit into the overarching narrative around craftsmanship? So a craftsperson is someone who takes their job very seriously, takes their craft very seriously, and maintains control over the duration of their of their creation, right? For as long as this thing is is working, they maintain control over it. One of the problems that we have in the industry is that it's very easy for programmers to lose control of, of the code that they produce. And that is evidenced by the fact that the code tends to degrade over time. The designs of, the design degrades, the architecture degrades. And that this degradation occurs because programmers get trapped they get trapped by fear. 
They look at the code on their screen. They know that it's starting to degrade, but they're afraid to do anything about it because they're worried they're going to break it. And right now it's working. You know, at least it's working. So why would I try to clean it? Why would I try to make it better from a structural point of view? Right. So they get trapped into that, into that kind of mindset. Refactoring is the discipline that undoes that, right? So when you are refactoring, you are improving the structure of the code without changing any behavior. And you, you know that you have not changed the behavior because you have a suite of tests that mm -hmm. you trust. And therefore, you cannot separate refactoring from test-driven development. These two must go along with each other. They have to be paired to each other. If you're following test-driven development, you will create a, a, a suite of tests. Mm -hmm. If you have the suite of tests, then you can refactor. If you can refactor, then you can keep control over the code. It does not need to rot. It will not degrade as long as you can refactor it well. Yeah, that makes sense. It's it's interesting, too, because I've seen this in some of my work, both on my personal projects and Lately, I've been working for a reasonably large company here in the U.S. And, you know, we have a test suite on our stuff. And as we refactor stuff, yeah, I mean, it, I can't tell you how many times that test suite has saved our bacon on, you know, this code is ugly. We're going to make it better, right? And, and it's ugly because it's hard to understand or uh, we can see maintenance problems coming up in the future or, you know, we, we look at it and we, you know, we can see some of these issues. And so that's what I mean by ugly, because ugly feels a little bit kind of a generic term. But if you look at it and you go, okay, you know, yeah, th this is going to become brittle under these circumstances, right? So we go and fix it, you know, and yeah, there have been several times where we go and fix it. And then we realize that there are other reasons why some of the stuff is the way it is. And so as we work around those things, we do make it overall better when we refactor but the test suite keeps us in line with what the assumptions were when the software was written. The test suite eliminates the fear of change. Right? Yeah. If, yeah. You're, uh, if you're worried about you know, the damage you might do by improving the code, then you're, you're not very likely to improve the code. <laughs> yeah, that's especially true if you get yelled at for improving the code, which was not at all <laughs> uncommon when I was you know, a, a much younger programmer. Right? The, the, right. Uh, the, the rule of thumb was, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, yeah. you know, bad code, even if it works, is broke. <laughs> and, it, and it will cause yeah. no end of trouble. People, you know, the software teams slow down enormously when they're faced with badly tangled, ugly legacy code. If, yeah. on the other hand, they can keep that code clean, they don't slow down. <laughs> yep. Yep. Not a difficult concept, I don't think. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's funny, too, because you mentioned when I was a younger programmer, we used to get punished for improving the code. That yeah. still happens. Yeah. I've worked at those places. <laughs> I'm sure it does. I was uh, corresponding with someone just the other day who asked me the question, you know, how do I improve the code when every change in the code must be justified with an engineering change order that's signed off on by the managers? <laughs> yeah. Right. So that's a situation where the organization has gotten so paranoid of change that they won't allow the, the programmers to improve their, their own work. <laughs> you must leave it alone. I once worked at a, a company where um, 
the most critical part of the system, the system that really made money for the customers, was so tangled and so difficult to understand that anytime anyone touched it, it broke in unpredictable ways. And the, uh, <laughs> the management of the company finally said, no one touches that module. <laughs> oh, that solved it. I'm yeah, glad well, they solved it. <laughs> I mean, solve that. Yeah. It, eventually, someone had to rewrite it, and it took them months to do, and it never quite did the right thing. <laughs> never quite did as it did it as well as that one horrible module. That that module was written by a guy who, the way it was told to me, he he leaned back in his seat for two weeks, staring at the ceiling, and then an immense amount of code poured out of every orifice of his body. He released it and then he quit. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and no one could touch it after that. By, by the I, way, that I was think, all in assembly I, language. I, I think that's how we got the five books of Moses, too. <laughs> so I love these apocryphal stories. I mean, they're just <laughs> awesome. And, but the other funny thing is, is that's how a lot of non-coding managers think it happens. It's like, yeah, you know, you just let the mind grind away at it for a while and then code issues forth. Yeah, co code pours out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, we've learned a lot of interesting things about the way code gets produced over the last 20 years. It, it was yeah. stunning to me when I first sat down with Kent Beck. It was 21 years ago. And he had... He had kind of convinced me that the extreme programming stuff was a good idea, but I was completely opposed to this whole notion of, you know, writing your tests first. Who does that? That's just stupid. <laughs> I know, uh, right? Yeah. I, so, and then I sat down with him. He and I met at his house in Oregon and, and I sat down with him and the two of us paired on a, a small little Java application, just wrote it out of whole cloth. And he showed me this discipline of, of test-driven development and refactoring coupled together. And I'd never seen anything like it. I mean, it was, it was so eye-opening to me that you could write code in tiny little increments without the long thinking process, you know, the long mm -hmm. upfront thinking process. Instead, you could take these tiny little steps and anchor each step with some tests and then improve the code and then a next step. and and by the time we were done, I think we were working on it for like two or three hours. By the time we were done, we had this nice little applet, you know, that did a cute little thing on the mm -hmm. screen. And we had been coding at it without ever debugging anything. <laughs> it, just, it just weird came out and worked, which, you know, I'd never seen that before in my life. Usually you spend hours <laughs> debugging in a debugger trying to figure out what the hell you did wrong. And, and it just didn't happen that way. The code just came out and it worked and it was pretty and it was well-structured. And I went home from that meeting and I thought, okay, something new has entered my life here. And I'd already been a programmer for 30 years. And so I didn't expect mm -hmm. something new to come along, but there it was. This, is, this was a new discipline that I had not anticipated. So right. the last 20 years, I've spent trying to get really good at it. <laughs> and <ha> so, <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. So you, you get TDD going, you got refactoring going, you know, 
there's a lot of talk about pairing and how to do it right and stuff like that. But but how does pairing fit into this then, as far as well, software craftsmanship goes? And and pairing is probably not the right word. It was the word that was used in extreme programming, but maybe a right. better word is collaborative programming. And that would imply either pairing or mobbing or some other technique that involves more than one person in the act of writing the code. Uh, and and the, the reason that's useful, first of all, it's useful just because it's good to have multiple eyes, right? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and, and by the way, when you're pairing, both people or all people, if you're doing more than pairing, are equally committed to this code that they're producing. They're equally engaged in the authorship process. They're right. not, you know, one is not the reviewer and the other the author. That's That's my problem with the code review style is that there are two different roles. And the role of the reviewer is kind of the on-high person who blesses or doesn't bless the code, but isn't really uh, at, at, at any kind of risk. They have no personal mm-hmm. stake in the code. They've just got a red pen that they use with abandon. Hey, I like my red pen. <laughs> I happen to like mine too, but... but when you're when you're pairing or when you're collaborating together, it's a co-authorship. And yeah. the other thing that's really valuable about that is that when you are that deeply engaged with someone else's code, if I can use the word someone else's, yes, Siri, I know, then <laughs> you are you are um Gaining knowledge that you would not have gained any other way. You're gaining an understanding at a very deep level. So a a team of programmers that pairs, that collaborates in that kind of co-authorship way, will all understand what each other are doing extremely well. And if you lose someone for a day or for a week or for a month, the team does not suddenly have this knowledge hole, right? Everybody else kind of knew what was going on and they can redistribute themselves and continue making progress. So I think that's that's a very valuable thing. It also gives us a way to jointly understand the, the goal of refactoring. You know, what, what is it that makes the code good? What is it that makes it well-structured? And if we're collaborating well, then the team will come to a single goal of what what that good structure looks like. You won't have a bunch of programmers saying, well, this code is better or that code is better, or the constant argument back and forth. They'll they'll come to some kind of unified goal. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. I have to tell you that, uh, so at my full-time job, which I've been at since September, we do mobbing all the time. Oh, do you? It's it's exhausting. That's I the mean, thing about it. It is exhausting. It, it, it's much. It's much harder. Takes more energy than coding alone. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It's funny because we we all kind of not not by any kind of design, but we take turns going. All right, guys, I need a break. <laughs> because it is. I mean, you just you know you, you engage whether you're driving or just you know. Oh, okay. And sometimes you know it's the the stuff like you missed a close paren, right? And sometimes it's a, uh, so I would never actually want to use the API as we kind of cobbled this together to make it just work, right? And so we push the refactor and then somebody else will add to the refactor, right? And it, anyway, you kind of get the idea that it, 
yeah, it, it moves things along in a way that we get to something that's much, much better than we would have ever written alone. And the other thing that's interesting too that I'm going to throw out here is that my team is kind of interesting because what we're doing is we're actually porting a Groovy and Grails app to Ruby on Rails. And so the one guy is the Groovy and Grails expert, right, on the old system. And he's supposed to be transferring knowledge to us and the Grails system is still inscrutable to me after six months. <laughs> but it's, you know, he's he's proficient in Rails. I've been doing Rails for like 15 years. So I am more than proficient at Rails. And then the other guy has kind of done a whole bunch of different things and is much less proficient in Rails. And we all contribute, right? We all come from different places. And some of us are much more experienced than others within the domain or in programming in general. And we still all contribute, I think, sometimes in equal ways, depending on how you measure it, basically because we see things that the others don't. Yes. Yeah. And that and that's you know one of the great benefits of of that kind of pairing or mobbing is that you do get these multiple perspectives, yeah. right? And and so you you wind up with much better code, and everybody winds up with a much better understanding. And then there's other weird things that happen, like um, and I'm sure that you experienced this in your mobbing. You're sitting there working, and you're you're collaborating, and you're authoring, and you've got this mental model in your head that that is fairly complicated of what's going on. And then the phone rings. <laughs> and, and one of you takes deals with the phone call while the other guys are still working on the code. And then when the guy, on, when the phone comes back, his mental model's gone, right? He's, he, had to, he had to talk to his wife about bringing bread home for supper or something like that. And so he comes back and says, where the hell were we? And you guys are still there. So you can just transfer that knowledge right in and suck him right back into the mob. Yep. So let's talk about simple design. Simple design. So it, it seems simple, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, it's not exceptional. Like I'm trying to like picture in my head what what if if I saw code that had simple design, what would it look like? And I'm not sure exactly what you mean by it. So Ron Jeffries came up with a uh, a list of four points, or maybe it was Kent. You know, Ron wrote a lot of things that Kent said. Uh -huh. <laughs> So it right. might have been Kent Beck who said this, or maybe it was Ron Jeffries, but the four bullet points are simple design, code that has a simple design, number one, passes all its tests. <laughs> Two, expresses everything that the, that the uh, author wanted to express. And three is, uh, has the fewest number of components, fewest classes, fewest functions, something like that. So there's these simple little bullet points that, that you walk down. I start with that. I just start with that idea. Then, okay, this is what simple design is. But then, then I'm, I want to make a, a different point. Start with that. Then I say, look, here we are, right? We've got a test suite that we really trust. And we have refactored like crazy, right? So that our code is clean. How much, how much extra design do we need? How much anticipation do we have to put into this code? Right. Are there new features coming down the pike? Do we need to put the hooks in for those new features or can we leave the hooks out? And the argument I make is leave the hooks out. Don't put the hooks in. Right. Let the mm -hmm. let the simplest possible design stand for the set of requirements that you currently have. Trusting that your tests and your refactoring and your mobbing will allow you to shift that design once new features come in. We got trapped in the 90s. In the 90s, 
the mindset was put the hooks in. That's what object orientation <laughs> was really all about, right? All this OO stuff lets you put the hooks in. We're going to make reusable frameworks and everything is going to be ultimately modifiable because all the hooks will be put in. And we created these designs that were huge behemoths, monsters that were were, uh, very, very difficult to, to carry forwards over time. And of course, what we discovered was that most of the hooks we put in never got hooked. (laughs) <laughs> right. And the ones that did get hooked had the wrong shape. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah, the, the the version of this that I've heard is the backlog is a lie. Right. We're putting all this stuff in so that down the road, when we want the thing that we know we were going to want. Right. It, it can just it can just latch on to this API or latch on to this interface. And then it turns out that the backlog was a lie and we're never going to get to 90 percent of that. And now we have all this extra crap to maintain. So there's been this really interesting shift, right? And and, and people have given it odd names like Yagni. Yagni, yep, that's the one I heard. Do the simplest thing that could possibly work, that kind of stuff. Without, you know, in the early days of, of extreme programming, there wasn't a lot of good understanding either by the proponents or by the detractors. <laughs> so, so they were kind of yelling at each other without understanding what the real emphasis was. And nowadays, with a little bit of perspective, 20 years of perspective, we can look back and say, okay, all right, when we're building software systems, can we afford to keep those systems as simple as they need to be today without adding all kinds of cruft to them? And the answer to that is, I think, generally true. Right? General, there are a few hooks that I will probably put in because you know it's obvious that something's going to happen and why wouldn't I put these simple little hooks in? But the vast majority, I'm going to, I'm going to wait on. I'm going to allow the discipline, this coupled discipline of testing, refactoring, pairing, and simple design. I'm going to allow that discipline to do its job. And that job is to be able to take me into the future, to support the the, uh, ongoing life cycle of the software as that software changes over time. The single most constant factor of software is that it changes over time. And these disciplines, when coupled together, are the engine that allows that change to take place as easily as possible. In my opinion. No, but it, it makes sense, right? Because you have fewer concerns. I mean, there are a lot of reasons and I probably won't be able to list them all, but yeah, it makes a ton of sense to me as far as you have fewer concerns, you have fewer things to change, you have fewer things that can break. You know, it's straightforward to see what's going on there. So you're not going to, you know, violate more assumptions than you have there. I mean, just on and on and on. It makes a lot of sense. So you just put in what you need. All right, so we've got these four things going for us, these four disciplines. And yeah, I, it, it makes a lot of sense to kind of have this as the foundation for craftsmanship. So where do we go from here? Well, then we go into standards. And the standards okay. are management tools, right? We, and and they're written, it's written for leaders. And these standards are written for leaders. And the, the idea is this. You can try to tell programmers what to do. And most most managers learn that programmers will not do what they're told to do. <laughs> it's like herding right. cats. It's like herding cats. If if you're a manager and you think test-driven development is a good idea, 
and you tell all your programmers, all right, from now on, we're doing test-driven development, you can bet that they're probably not going to be doing test-driven development. Or, or if right. they do do it, they will do it in some kind of passive-aggressive way to make sure it fails. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, so so uh, how, do you, how do you properly motivate people to do the things that you know should be done? And one of the ways that I think is effective is to set expectations, expectations that are so obvious that they can't be contradicted. You know, for example, don't ship crappy code. Now, that's right. a fairly obvious expectation. And, and not only would the manager expect that, but so would all the customers. I mean, everybody expects or should expect that the code you're, you're going to be delivering is good code. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you just set that expectation, how does it change the behavior of the programmers? Because it's difficult to argue that the code has to be crappy. Right. So, so now how do the programmers deal with that expectation, which is a perfectly valid expectation? Or here's another one. Programmers should be able to prove on a moment's notice that the code they've produced works as specified. Right. And everybody, everybody should expect that the programmers would be able to prove that. You should be able to demonstrate that your system works. You should be able to demonstrate that your code works. Now, how are you going to do that? It's a perfectly realistic expectation. Any customer would want that. Any manager would want that. All right, programmer, Mm -hmm. given that expectation, how are you going to demonstrate on a moment's notice at any point in time that the code you wrote works as expected? Now, I could recommend that maybe you've written some tests, but you don't have to do that if you've got some other better way. Right. (laughs) Right? So the, the expectations in the expectations chapter, all of those expectations are projections of the disciplines. If you followed those disciplines, you would probably meet those expectations. But let's start with the expectations and and, and see if there's some other set of disciplines, maybe. Because it's the expectations that really matter. Maybe there's some other disciplines that would create those, create or satisfy those expectations. I don't go through in the book any other set of disciplines, but the the notion of the expectations opens the opens the question. Is there another set of disciplines or is there a a modification to those disciplines? Are there some other ways to meet these expectations? Because it's the expectations that actually matter. Right. So how do we set good expectations? Right. How do we set? Well, I mean, and my 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 answer to that is I just enumerate them. I think there's a dozen in there that I I enumerate. Right. Just go Uh through all of these. All of these expectations, you know, the the code should always be uh, the code should always be improving. The structure of the system should always be improving. That is a reasonable expectation. <laughs> the design of the system should get better with time. That is a reasonable expectation because right. humans improve things with time. Mm-hmm. You know, nature degrades things with time. Humans improve things with time. So it's a perfectly valid expectation. Those are the kinds of things that I set forth in the book. And then, you know, the people reading the book can kind of look back and say, okay, well, the disciplines might match those, might meet those expectations. But maybe there's some other disciplines that would too. And that's just one way of of trying to extrapolate from the disciplines to the expectations. 
Right. I thought at, at one point I thought about maybe inverting the order of the book and starting mm-hmm. with the ethics and then going to the expectations and then going to the disciplines. But I, I'm still I still have it in the original order. Disciplines first, then expectations, then ethics. I think right. that's probably the right order. <laughs> so what are the expectations? I mean, you mentioned one, which is that the coach should improve over time, right? The coach should improve over time. Okay. You should not deliver crap. Uh, you should be able to prove that your system works at a moment's notice or your, your code works at a moment's notice. Um, let's see, what are some of the others? You should be uh, supporting each other, right? How did I? How do I word that properly? We work as a team. Yeah, we, we work as a team. We cover for each other. If someone goes down, someone else can take over immediately. Right. That's a, a reasonable expectation, right? Somebody stumbles and falls or somebody goes on vacation. It does not leave the team with this hole of knowledge. The team is not immobilized by an absence, right? So that's a reasonable expectation. We teach each other, you know, new, new people come in, the, the uh, more experienced people teach the new people. It's a reasonable expectation. There's right. a whole bunch of them in there that I walk through. And if you want a list of them, I can probably read off the list. Let's see. Get my manuscript up here. And let's see. These standards. Yes. Okay. We will always be ready. That's another one. I expect the, the software team to always be ready to deploy, regardless of what time it is. <laughs> now, yep. it doesn't bother me that maybe there's a week gap you know i say we need to deploy and they say well you got to wait until friday that doesn't bother me what does bother me is that uh, they might say well you gotta wait four months right because we haven't done the burn-in yet and we haven't done this yet and and, and qa hasn't passed yet i i want all this stuff to be ready on a pretty much a moment's notice we should always be ready to deploy we should be building our systems in such a way that we can deploy at a moment's notice. And I, I want that to be a business decision, not a technical decision. From a technical point of view, we should always be ready. QA is always done. Documentation is always done. Testing is always done. Everything is always done. Maybe maybe once a week or maybe once every two weeks, something like that. Right. Uh, and then the business looks at what they've got every week or every two weeks and can make the decision whether or not they want to deploy it. But from the engineering point of view, we are always ready. And then business takes on the responsibility of deciding whether or not to deploy. I expect stable productivity. Uh, I do not expect productivity to decline over time as the system gets larger and larger and more and more complicated. I, I expect productivity of the programming team to remain a constant, or at least a constant proportional to, to the number of people on the team. Right? So if you've got a team of five, that team of five should be going as fast in three years as they were going at the start of the project. I expect that kind of stability and productivity. And that's not what most most uh, teams experience. Most teams experience this, this uh, asymptotic decline towards zero. Right. As, as the system gets worse and worse and worse. And, and then everybody wants to demand a redesign. I don't ever expect a redesign. <laughs> I've done that. I was the team lead and I did that. Of course, I was a new team lead and I I had a grand total of like a year's worth of professional programming experience at the time. But yeah, we did that. It got more and more complicated. Things were more and more coupled. And 
it just got to the point where it was a slog to get anything done. Went to my boss and said, we got to redesign this sucker. <laughs> I had a, a friend who once said, the best thing that could happen to this system is for someone to walk into the machine room with a great big magnet, which of course no one understands nowadays. Nobody understands why that's a joke. Because <laughs> nobody knows what a machine room is or why a magnet would have any effect on it. Right. <laughs> but back in those days, that was that was something we said. It is a, a general truth of software development that programmers will work for a period of time, one, two, three years, and then hate what they are working on so much that they want to redesign it from scratch. And, and the business will hate it so much because they can't get anything done. And so there's this uh, conspiracy, if you will, that says, all right, well, we're just going to have to redesign the whole thing from scratch. And of course, the mm -hmm. business doesn't want to do that because it's going to cost a lot of money. But the business is desperate because they can't get anything done. And the programmers right. are all telling them, well, we'll be able to get things done, you know, if we just redesign everything from scratch. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what they want to hear. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. Yep. I don't expect. Yep. I don't expect that. I don't expect teams to do that. I expect teams to keep their systems well structured and well written and well running during the entire lifetime of the project. What a concept! Yep. No, it makes sense. Have you ever wondered if you could be offering a faster, less buggy experience for your customers? I mean, let's face it. The only way you're going to know that is by actually running it on production. So go figure it out, right? You run it on production, but you need something plugged in so that you can find out where those issues are, where it's slowing down, where it's having bugs. You just, you need something like that there. And Raygun is awesome at this. They, they just added the performance monitoring, which is really slick and it works like a breeze. I, I just, I love it. I love it. It's like, it's like you get the ray gun and you zap the bugs. It's anyway, definitely go check it out. It's going to save you a ton of time, a ton of money, a ton of sanity. I mean, let's face it. Grepping through logs is no fun. And having people not able to tell you that it's too slow because they got sidetracked into Twitter is also not fun. So go check out Raygun. They are definitely going to help you out. There are thousands of customer-centric, customer-focused software companies who use Raygun every day to deliver great experiences for their customers. And if you go to Raygun and use our link, you can get a 14-day free trial. So you can go check that out at cleancoderspodcast.com slash Raygun. Yeah, and no, and it, and it, I mean, they put, companies put a lot of money and time and effort into these projects. And if it's well factored, then yeah, you should be able to make changes to it with a minimum of risk and a minimum of extra work. That That's the theory, certainly. That's why we call this software. Wait, yep. We call it software. It was supposed to be soft. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we invented this dis discipline so that we could easily change the behavior of our machines. We had machines yep. already and they were really hard to change. Yep. We, could have, we could have kept them hard to change by just keeping it all in hardware, but we wanted yep. software so that we could easily change the behavior of our machines. <laughs> so what do software developers do? They make it hard to change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, well, it, it's true, but the thing is, is that it takes real effort, right? It takes real deliberate effort in order to keep things from devolving that way. It does. That's why it's... That's why it's craftsmanship. That's why it's not just 
hey, you know, software spaghetti against the wall or whatever you wind up doing. But I have a hard time feeling sympathetic about that. <laughs> oh, poor babies. It's hard. Yeah, you're right. It's hard. You know, this is this is just real, like everything I, else. Real software. Yeah, just like everything else. Oh, but my boss gave me a deadline. Well, what? You mean you didn't tell your boss the cost of, of that kind of rushing? You didn't explain that he was going to wind up with a bunch of hardware at the end? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's one of well, the expectations, by the way. One of the expectations is, is that I expect you to say no. When the answer mm-hmm. is no, I expect you to say no. And, and by the way, you know, I'm not telling all the junior programmers out there to, to go, no, 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 no. You know, like the Batman Lego. But I do expect the more senior people to, to deal with management on an equal level and say, look, <laughs> I understand you've got deadlines and we're going to try and meet those deadlines, but we may not be able to meet them with all the features you need and keep this system maintainable and operational. Right. We're going to have to compromise here, guys. And I expect software developers to be professional enough to look their bosses in the eye and say, no, yeah. the answer is no. That's why you're hired. <laughs> you, you know, you're not hired so because you know how to write code, because writing code just isn't that hard. You, you're hired because, you know, you are hired for knowledge and you have the knowledge to say no. And if you don't engage that knowledge, if you don't use that knowledge, you're not actually doing your job. <laughs> yep. Yep. Absolutely. Well, the other thing is, is that, again, if you wind up in the position, let's say, where it has devolved to the point where it, you know, you're not getting consistent results when you go and add new features or, you know, do other maintenance on the system, you need to communicate that too, right? Here's what we're running into. We need to refactor some of these areas to regain some of the momentum that we've had. And then we need to maintain discipline so that we don't revert back to, you know, the problems that we're having right now. This is all part of being a professional. And I actually debated whether I should call the book, you know, clean professionalism or clean craftsmanship. Because mm. you know, craftsmanship is is the is another word for being a professional. You know, a craftsman is professional. This is all part of this this need for our industry to adopt a profession, to become professional. Right now, it's very difficult to call us a profession. There is nothing that we profess. This book, I hope, is a start of something that we could profess so that we have a profession. Yep. And and it's interesting, too, because I don't know that we talk a whole lot about professionalism in programming. I think a lot of times, though, it cut, it's because it comes with baggage, right? It comes with baggage around, you know, professionalism in other industries is, you know, you dress a certain way or you, you know, you behave in a certain way. And here what we're talking about is just, you know, professionalism in the code we deliver. And, you know, the, the quality and the standard we set for ourselves, And I think standards was the third thing, wasn't it? Uh, ethics. 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 Yeah. But, you know, yeah. But my point is, is that, yeah, we, we have to have that, you know, that idea of what we are willing to deliver, what we're willing to put forward as our professional output. And so that's professionalism. 
the, and we don't talk about it much. We don't. And we don't have the, the necessary trappings of a profession. We do not have a set of ethics. Mm-hmm. You know, professional ethics, if you, if you have a profession, you have a set of ethics that you follow. You have a set of standards that you meet. You have a set of disciplines that you, that you follow. That's what a profession is. And we don't yeah. have that. You know, we, 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 we are more like, I mean, I'm kind of at a loss to describe what we're more like. Are we more like bricklayers? Well, no, because bricklayers have disciplines and standards and ethics. You know? yeah. What are we really? Well, you know, we're kind of like a ragtag bunch of people who run around, you know, slinging coat around without any governing philosophy. I, I don't know if I said that properly, but but without the without the trappings of a profession to keep everyone in in a constant in, in a consistent mindset. And that's yeah. dangerous. You know, there was a time when there were, you know, 100 programmers in the world. <laughs> and, you know, we didn't have to have a profession or a 1,000 programmers or even 10,000 programmers in the world. We didn't need a profession because there was really nothing that critical going on. But, but nowadays, our society runs on software. And, mm-hmm. and it, that software is being written by a an industry that has not yet defined a profession and i find that to be uh risky scary terrible things could happen <laughs> yeah yeah we've seen a few of them already and and more could happen and of course you know forming a profession behaving professionally would not eliminate those terrible things but at least it would it would put our industry on a trajectory that would minimize some of the worst that could happen. I mean, at this point, lives are at stake. Fortunes are at stake. Livelihoods mm-hmm. are at stake, right? Our society just couldn't run without software. And we still don't have a governing theory for how software should be run. Did you want me to do something in your 1,737 home? <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable, isn't it? Yikes. Yeah. Yeah. But the thing that's that, uh, that I find fascinating about this, so I've been helping my father-in-law with some of his work. He's a general contractor, right? And mostly what I've been helping with involves the work that he's doing at my mom's house. You know, she hired him to help remodel her kitchen. And well, she hired him to remodel her kitchen, you know, but I'm getting in there and we're working on like putting flooring in and things like that. And his professional standard is different from the people who built the house on their own 40 <laughs> years ago, right? <laughs> who were, were, side note, they were our neighbors when I was a kid in a different house in a different neighborhood. And they were, they were weird people, uh-huh. but, you know, and he wasn't a professional when he built it. Right. But at the end of the day, what was interesting was that, yeah, you know, the floor is not even, it's got all these issues. Right. And so he had to go in and basically grade the floor of my mom's house before he could put the flooring in so that it would look right and so that it wouldn't buckle when you walked on it, right? And this is the kind of stuff that we're talking about here with the craftsmanship, right? He could have just put floor down. In fact, my parents, when I was a teenager, so this was almost 30 years ago, they actually paid some people to come in and put a wood floor in, and they just put it over the top of the uneven floor. And, you know, so my father-in-law shows up and he's completely disgusted that they did this. 
because they didn't grade the floor or anything, right? So he's going in and fixing all the uneven spots and things like that. And, you know, to me, that's what's kind of embodied in this idea is, okay, you know, we're setting the foundations, right? We're doing TDD, we're doing pairing, we're doing, you know, we're sticking to the simple design. We're, you know, we're doing these practices, right? Where we are refactoring the code, right? Or leveling the floor so that when we go to build software, we build it on top of it so that it works the way that it's supposed to. And it's not going to cause issues for whatever we put on top of that, right? And then we've got these ideas around, you know, some of this other stuff as far as how we put the code together that, you know, build upon that. And yeah, we, we kind of get to the point where now we're talking about, you know, we, we get to the ethics, right? And, and some of the other things that we're talking about here. But I, I love kind of the progression there. And, and to me, that's the professionalism, right? Because my father-in-law is about the, the least like, you know, buttoned up guy you've ever met, right? He's, he's loud. He's, <laughs> you know, he says what he thinks, you know, but when it comes down to the work he does, he, he delivers a high quality product that's going to work for people for years because he has that professional standard. One of the things that characterizes programmers, I think, is a, a rejection of symbolic gestures. Mm. Uh, so you, you said, you know, just this professionalism stuff sometimes comes with trappings, like you have to wear a shoe or suit or you have to behave a certain way. And you right. think of a professional as someone like a lawyer or an accountant and they're they're, uh, they have to dress the proper dress code mm-hmm. and have the have the proper vocabulary. And in my experience, programmers have almost always rebelled against that kind of outward symbolism, because what matters to a programmer, and again, this is in my opinion, what matters to a programmer is that they do their job really well. Yeah, you know, they they're good. They're good at writing code, and that's all that should matter. And did you ever watch the um, the uh, TV show House? <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> okay, so so this this is the story of a doctor who is so good, so incredibly good that he can be a raving asshole, <laughs> <laughs> and everybody hates him, but they can't fire him because he's so good. So it's, so it's it's there's there's that kind of attitude in a in programmers that you know look. Uh-huh. I'm not dressing your way. I'm not behaving your way. I'm 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 going to do whatever the hell I want because I am a programmer and I'm really good at what we do. What what I do, and professionalism is just the crystallization of that idea. Right? We we're not going to dress a certain way. <laughs> yeah, we programmers. Right. We're not going to do that. We're not going to all of a sudden look like lawyers. We're not all of going to all of a sudden going to have that. But we are going to crystallize this idea of that that we do things well, and we can define what well means. And and it's not just the output that is done well, but the way we do it is done well. The workmanship itself is done well. Mm-hmm. You know, so we produce systems that work and systems that are robust. But we are also proud of the process by which we have created those systems. Right. So going back to what we were talking about before with these different 
I can't remember the the exact term, the behaviors or the disciplines, standards, and ethics. The standards. Yeah, the standards. Yeah. So going back to the standards. So some of these are a little bit hard to measure too, right? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, we will not ship crappy code. Well, okay, define crappy code. <laughs> you know, I don't expect you to ship crappy code. Okay, well, what are those? What what is crappy code? How do you how do you define that? And the disciplines, once you go back into the disciplines, there are there are ways to define what is good code and what is bad code. You know, I wrote a whole book about that, that topic, clean code. But you're right. Some of these, some of these standards are subjective in a certain way mm-hmm. or to a certain extent, but not so much that you can't tell that you're violating them, right? There's an obvious threshold at some point, right? Everybody knows when they've delivered a pile of crap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you go home and you have to take a shower because you released this horrible code. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we've got these standards and I, I, I mean, how do we measure them? I mean, that's the thing is, yeah, it, it reminds me a little bit of some, you know, pe- people use this example for like courts, you know, pornography, you know, I'll know it when I see it kind of thing. Yes. But for yeah. me, I, I want to be able to measure the standard, right? I want to be able to know if I'm living up or not, you know, call me a nerd or whatever, or a numbers guy or whatever, right? I, I, you know, I want to be able to stick that ruler next to whatever I'm working with and go, yeah, you know. <laughs> And and some of it's going to be by feel, right? It that you know, there's no way around it with some of this stuff. But at the end of the day, yeah, you know, like productivity. Do we measure productivity? How do we measure productivity? You know, is productivity going up or down? Is this a long-term trend, or did we just you know hit something that we misestimated? Or anyway, it it, it gets kind of interesting there for me, at least in my head. I'm not sure that a numerical analysis is what we want to do. Um, okay. Maybe maybe for some things, you know, maybe for things like bug counts and, and things like that, that th- there are some statistics that would be useful. And and possibly with estimations and and productivity as well, there might be some numbers you can add to it. But but I think the the primary measurement is human judgment. You know, how do um how do how do we assess the quality of a person? <laughs> right. You know, we, we have a judgment about them. We have a judgment about the, how do, we, how do we assess the quality of a piece of art? How do we assess the quality of a piece of code? There's a judgment that we apply. And, and there is a threshold somewhere. There is, a, there is a line where you cross from good code to bad code, from good art to bad art. And people, right. people will disagree about where that line is. But there, there comes a line somewhere where finally you say, yeah, okay, everything on that side of that line is bad. Everything on the other side, we don't, we're not quite sure. And by the way, everything on this far side is really good. <laughs> so there's this big middle. Yeah. And I think, I think for us, that big middle, that gray area, where we're not quite sure, is up to the, the managers who set the expectations. Right? Mm-hmm. If I'm the manager of a team and I'm the one setting the expectations, I'm going to be the one to judge, right? And, you know, I'll, I'll get a lot of input to it, but I'm going to be the one to judge. You know, that does not meet our expectations. That there, that thing there does not meet our expectations. It needs to be better. Yep. How does a captain yep. of a ship do this? You ever think about that? A captain of a ship has got to get a whole bunch of guys in line with the same mental model. 
Yeah, it's true. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Usually there's a there's a shared outcome, and in oh. software, there's a shared outcome as well. Yeah, yeah. And there are some measures that you can put to it as far as like how quickly did we get there, you know, you know, how much fuel did we use, things like that, you know, as far as like how much it cost us and things like that. And a lot of these things do apply to software. And so you can measure those things. And so, yeah. And, and I think at the management level, a lot of that is the right place to start talking about this because at the end of the day, those are things that you can measure and those are outcomes that you can then start to look at how to improve. And, and that's where we start getting into like agile development and stuff where we're going, okay, well, how can we be more efficient at this? How can we do this better? How can we, you know, and, and again, some of it's going to be subjective, right? Well, you know, we're not as burned out at the end of the day, but we're still maintaining our, you know, our velocity of, of output or things like that. And so, yeah, but a lot of it does come down to management and the processes you put in place and kind of the accepted norms there. All right. Well, let's let's go ahead and veer into ethics because I think we've kind of beat standards to death. But I, I do want to just add one more thing, and that is that, you know, in all that gray area, I think there's some communication that needs to happen too between management and between teams, between members of the team, where if somebody feels like it's not up to their standard, you know, bring it up. Talk to your team members. Talk about why. Talk about how you feel about it. Talk about what you're seeing or feeling that isn't quite you know, landing the way you want it to. And then, and then see if you can, you know, arrive at some level of, okay, well, we're not going to deliver anything that's below this line. I'm sitting here right. nodding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. People, can't, people can't hear you nod, Bob. Yeah. People can't hear you nod. <laughs> All right. Let, let's do ethics. Let's talk about ethics because this is interesting, right? Like the, the disciplines, it's, I do these things. I do these things in a certain way you know, and, and I'm, I'm driving toward a certain outcome and that outcome has to meet certain standards. So where does ethics come in? Right? Because at the end of the day, I mean, it's software that works. It's easy to maintain, blah, blah, blah. Ethics, right? So ethics are the, the things that you promise to yourself and to your industry. These are, are almost sacred, right? The, <laughs> These are lines you simply don't cross. And they're lines of behavior that you don't cross. So uh, I, I tried to model this after the Hippocratic Oath, right? And, and uh, so one of them is comes right out of the Hippocratic Oath, right? I will, I will not produce harmful code. That's, that's one of the ethical statements. And the, these statements are stated as a set of promises or, or as an oath of some kind. Not, you know, I'm not mm -hmm. thinking that it's an oath that you stand up and deliver before a great body, uh, but personally, to yourself, right? I will not produce harmful code. Now, the word harm, of course, is, is um, very subjective. Oh, yeah. But okay, all right. G given that it is subjective, you as a programmer have a definition of harm and you promise that you are not going to produce harmful code. You will not produce code that is harmful to your business. You will not produce code that is harmful to your customers. 
You will not produce code that is harmful to your fellow programmers. You are going to be producing code to, to the best of your ability is beneficial to your business, to your employer, to your customers, to your users, mm -hmm. and to all of your fellow programmers. And I, I, I kind of leave it there. Now, I write a whole bunch of words about it, of course, but right. that, that's the essence of the first of the promises. No harm, which is similar to the, how the Hippocratic Oath started. You know, I'm, mm -hmm. First, do no harm. Right. right. Okay. So that's the first. The second, the second is no defect. No defect in behavior or structure. And I'm looking for the quote here. The code that I produce will always be my best work. I will not knowingly allow code that is defective either in behavior or structure to accumulate. <laughs> now, I may play around with these words a little bit, but I think that gets to the gist of it. Here. Not only am I not going to produce code that's harmful, but all the code I produce will always be my best work. To the best of my ability, it will be my best work. And I will not allow code that is defective, either in behavior or in structure, to accumulate. And I chose the word accumulate intentionally because I don't think it's reasonable to expect programmers, to expect anyone to behave perfectly. But when you right. recognize that you have made a mistake, when you recognize that you have produced a defect in either behavior or structure or something else, you don't allow it to stay. You don't allow them to accumulate. You get rid of them. You clean mm -hmm. them up. So that's that's number two. I think there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten at the moment of these of these promises like that. That's the first right. Thing. And we did a we did two podcast episodes talking through these in more depth. But yes, I do like right. revisiting them here. And so yeah, let, let's just go through them real quick because I think it's important to to go into. Okay. The third one is, it's about the repeatable proof. I will produce with each release a quick, sure, and repeatable proof that every element of the code works as it should. <laughs> yeah, I don't care what that proof is. Might be a bunch of tests, might be a mathematical proof. I don't know, I don't care. But the promise that you will do that, I think is important, that you will not produce a code that you also have not produced a proof for and then the next one is the promise to work in small cycles you know i will let's see how does it go i will make frequent small releases so that i do not impede the progress of others you know maybe there's a better way to word that but i expect that programmers will promise that they will work in short cycles that they promise to themselves that they will work in short cycles because nobody does anything well in long cycles <laughs> So true. And the next is, you know, I will fearlessly and relentlessly improve my creations at every opportunity. I will never degrade them. You know, so this I, idea that you will promise to consistently improve things. You will always make things better because that's what human beings do. They make things better. Mm -hmm. right? And then the next one is, um, let's see, I will do all that I can to keep the productivity of myself and others as high as possible. I will do nothing that decreases that productivity. And what, that's an interesting promise to make because, you know, what are the things a programmer could do to decrease other people's productivity that have nothing to do with code? <laughs> it has to do with attitude, has to do with behavior, has to do with all manner of other aspects of their behavior. 
right? As well as the way they write code. So, you know, nothing decreases productivity. The next is I will work, I will continuously ensure that others can cover for me and that I can cover for them. This is the uh, promise to work on a team, to behave as a team behaves. The next one is about estimations. You know, I will produce estimates that are honest, both in magnitude and precision, and I will not make promises without certainty. <laughs> I will not estimate anything. Uh, I will not make a promise of delivery without certainty that I can make it. Right. And then finally, we've got, uh, I will respect my fellow programmers for their ethics, standards, and disciplines and skill. No other attribute or characteristic will be a factor in my regard for my fellow programmers. And lastly, we have, I will never stop learning and improving my craft. At least that's the set I've got right now. I don't know if I'm going to be fiddling with them or not, but these have been around for a while. You and I have done discussions on them when we talked about the programmer's oath. They are the, uh, that is the end result or the, the final projection from disciplines through standards to these ethical statements. Makes sense. So what is the, I guess, overarching narrative then for software craftsmanship? Like if, if there's one kind of big idea here that encompasses all this, what is it? Profess ethics, <laughs> profess standards, profess disciplines, adopt a profession. Mm, okay. I like it. <laughs> so when does the book come out? Well, um, we're in rough draft now, rough draft of the manuscript now. So if it goes the way most books do, I would expect it out sometime in the fall. Okay. Maybe late summer, maybe fall, something like that. All right. And this is the Clean Coders podcast, and we're doing this kind of as a partnership with Clean Coders. So do you have any courses on Clean Coders that are related to this? On the Clean Coders website, the videos there uh, cover... Uh, virtually all of this information. There's a, mm -hmm. there's a whole series on the programmer's oath there. There's a number of series on the disciplines of test-driven development, refactoring, and simple design and pairing. So all of these are well-discussed and well-delivered well in the videos on cleancoders.com. Awesome. We'll get links into the episodes for that as well. Any other resources you want to throw at people before we uh, wrap this up? Martin Fowler just produced a second edition of the book Refactoring. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that's a, the, the book. The book, when I read it in 1999, changed my life. <laughs> you know, so it was, it was a, a very important book at the time. The, new, the next edition, I'm sure, is, is excellent. I have read through it. I have not read it entirely. But what I did read, I thought was terrific. He's up, upgraded it a bit and updated it so that now it's... Uh, got uh, JavaScript instead of Java in it. And I think he's changed a few of the refactorings as well. Um, so that's an excellent resource. Uh, and, and there are so many other good resources. I want to just say in general, there are many books that were written 30 and 40 and even 50 years ago that most programmers today ignore. And that's a mistake because the, mm -hmm. the people who wrote those had a deep understanding of software. And the, the values and the ethics and the disciplines that they, they espoused are worthy of our, our study and consideration. So there's a number of books out there. And, and if you go to my website, which is cleancoder.com, and rather not the, the singular one, not the plural one, cleancoder.com, there's a list of recommended books on my website. And, and most of them 
are in this category of, you know, the older books that had the ancient wisdom of the elders. <laughs> mm-hmm. Makes sense. Yeah, we should definitely, uh, we should just do an episode on that. Like, what are the books from 30 years ago <laughs> that oh, people yeah, should be well, looking at? We could do an episode on that or, or more than one. Yeah, because there's plenty of those books. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think that would just be fascinating. And honestly, yeah, it's just, it just, I, I agree with you. I've read some of those books. Some of them are, I mean, how do I put it? Like one of them was uh, the SICP book oh, that yeah. I read with a bunch mm-hmm. of folks, you know, and it's, it's like Lisp and all this other stuff that I don't use on a daily basis. But boy, it sure made me think about the way I write my programs, right? And, uh, you know, you've got so many of these other resources out there that, you know, just dive into it. And then even going back 20, 25 years, you know, where you get into like the Extreme Programming book by Kent Beck, and you've got Clean Coders has been out for what, about that long, 20 years, something like that. Clean Code has been out about 10, 11, 12 oh, years. 10 years. Like yeah. Yeah. But you've got Pragmatic Programmer. It's been out for yeah. 20 years. That's 20 years. Yeah. Um, you know, and so... And and these are books that, you know, when I got into programming, I picked up and they make a major difference. And I don't see people talking about them now. And it's like, hey, there's this idea that was in this book and people are going, I've never heard that before, which is sad because it's it's a key principle to writing good software. I agree. So, yeah, I agree. So so let's let's do it one of these days. OK, but, that'd be a good one. Yeah. yeah. In the meantime. Yeah, we'll we'll put information out for the book when people can order it or pre-order it. And besides that, if people want to connect with you, where, where do they find you? They find me at cleancoder.com. That's my website, cleancoders.com. That's the video website. I'm on Twitter at Uncle Bob Martin. <laughs> all one word, all lowercase, of course. And that, that's about it. All right. Well, we'll put links to that in the show notes as well. Thanks, Bob. This has been a really fun conversation. And uh, yeah, now I'm going to go feel bad about the code I write today at work. So, <laughs> Well, thank you. It's been fun. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.